Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. In my own intellectual life, another 13th century theologian has been equally important and significant, and that is the theologian poet Dante. It was principally Dante who opened up for me the intellectual and cultural riches of medieval and Catholic theology. It was principally through a love of Dante that I came to love also St Thomas. So I'm thus doubly grateful to Father Jonah, not just for inviting me to speak at a TI retreat here, but a retreat which takes as its theme my own two great intellectual passions, the two great passionate intellects who have formed and, to con and continue to form my own, bless you, Aquinas and Dante. So I expect that most of you coming here to a TI retreat will have read or been exposed to Aquinas. And Aquinas is, for Catholics at least, the patron of schools and universities, and in the church's history has repeatedly been recommended by popes in the magisterium as the most reliable guide in philosophical and theological formation. As Pope Leo XIII, who of course formally established your Catholic University of America here with his 1889 encyclical Magni Nobis Gaudi on the 7th of March, the feast day, note well, of St Thomas Aquinas. As Pope Leo XIII put it, in those places where the young have devoted themselves to the patronage and doctrine of St Thomas, true wisdom will flourish, drawn as it is from solid principles and explained by reason in an orderly fashion. But perhaps less of you have read or been exposed to Dante, or at least to Dante as a reliable Catholic teacher and theologian. There are again historical reasons for this, as I will discuss more in my second more advanced talk, but I hope to show you all over the course of this retreat why there are very good reasons on your own intellectual journeys to take Aquinas and Dante as guides, just as Dante himself takes two guides, Virgil and Beatrice, on his own. And again in the church's history, Dante has been recommended by popes and the magisterium in this way, from your own Pope Leo XIII himself. Indeed, we might justly speak um, of the Leonine Renaissance, not just of Thomistic studies, but of Dante studies as well. To Pope Francis today, who has recently reminded us of the intimate union 
of Dante and this chair of Peter. So in this uh, first introductory talk, I'm going to talk about Dante and Aquinas as passionate intellects and as potential models for you, many of whom are university students or young adults, in your own intellectual questing and journeying. In discussing how we might be drawn into Dante's theological poetic world, I'm going to introduce first Dante's cosmology, what the poem represents at a literal and figurative level, and second to Dante's journey and its three main protagonists. Third, I discuss three anthropological principles at the heart of Dante's theological vision, our intellect, our capacity to know, our will, our capacity to be moved by love, and our freedom to choose. And finally, I'll turn to the passionate intellects in Dante's poem itself as potential models for us, from the pagan philosophers in hell to the Christian intellectuals in the heaven of the sun, the heaven of wisdom. So my children have four children and uh, they often get at me because they say you spent your whole life at university and we still can't read your writing. Um, <laughs> and they've got very good handwriting and they're So I, I, I put the structure of uh, my talk on the whiteboard and I worked really hard on my handwriting. <laughs> I hope you can read it. I don't have a hand up but that, that'll kind of, that's where we're going. So first of all, being moved by Dante. What first attracted me to Dante some 20 years ago now, as an atheist agnostic student, seeking meaning and purpose in my own life and in my university studies, was my sense of being in the presence of an intellect, a mind on fire, a passionate intellect, an intellect which opened up for me a seemingly inexhaustible world of meaning, of theology, philosophy, literary and artistic culture, and much else besides. A world of meaning, moreover, that finally could respond to, or at least which took seriously, some of my own deeper questions, questions which seemed to me unanswered by much of the wider contemporary university, academic and intellectual culture. In being moved by Dante, I was, of course, neither the first nor the last, but simply one in an innumerable procession of people thus moved. The theologian Peter Hawkins writes, Readers of Dante have nothing to lose in coming to the Commedia, except perhaps life as they've known it thus far. And that was certainly the case for me. The term passionate intellect was itself coined to describe Dorothy Sayers and her own profound encounter with Dante, which came for her quite late in her own life, but which led her to devote her own passionate intellect to Dante, who became her master, prompting her to write a translation of the poem in rhyme in Tetsurima in the Penguin Classic series, which would become immensely popular with its English speaking audience and um, speaking with Justin and Caleb yesterday is still being used and rightly so in my view uh, by some college classes here in the States um, today. Sayers herself wrote, I saw the whole layout of Dante's hell 
as something actual and contemporary. Something that one can see by looking into oneself or into the pages of tomorrow's newspaper. I saw it, that is, as a judgment of fact, unaffected by its period, unaffected by its literary or dogmatic origins. And I recognized at the same moment that the judgment was true. Now that I think is a wonderful response to Dante. Some readers are put off by the complexity of Dante's poem or by the numerous otherwise unknown details of individuals and historical events, or even by its geocentric outdated cosmology. But Dorothy says could immediately see through and beyond all this. She understood that Dante uses what we see, how the world appears to us. And let's face it, even this very morning, the sun still did appear to us to rise in the east. And even this very evening, it will still appear to us to set in the west. Dorothy says understood that Dante uses what we see, how the world appears to us, to explore, describe and represent our inner world, the unseen, moral, emotional, psychological, intellectual and spiritual realities that perhaps our triumphant materialism focused as it is almost obsessively on the world of the senses, sometimes may obscure from view. As Dante himself writes in the first heaven of the moon, not because he believes that there are literally saints hovering around the moon, but in order to signify a particular spiritual reality, they, this group of saints, did here in the sphere of the moon show themselves, but not because this sphere had been allotted them as theirs. They signify celestial power least raised. To speak in this way fits the human mind for you only grasp through things you've sensed what mind will then present as fit for thought. For this same reason, scripture condescends to your capacities and says that God has hands and feet, though meaning otherwise. So Holy Church will also represent Michael and Gabriel with human face, the other two who helped heal Tobit's sight. Thus does even Dante's geocentric cosmology describe a spiritual and moral reality. He imagines that after the great cosmic battle, Lucifer, the brightest of the angels, fell from heaven, plummeting towards the earth. But because the earth is good, it recoiled in horror, creating the spiralling funnel of hell with Lucifer stuck ludicrously, frozen in ice at its centre. Because God, out of every evil, brings about some good, this displaced earth created in the southern hemisphere, the mountain of purgatory, the way back to God already prepared for man who would, 
tempted by Satan, be drawn into sin. And finally then, Dante depicts the extraordinary and brilliant diversity of the saints' holiness and gifts through the ten heavens, even though, as he emphasises, all the saints, in fact, reside in the Empyrean, beyond space and time itself. To, th to these three great realms of the Christian afterlife, the funnel of hell, the mountain of purgatory, the spheres of paradise, Dante devotes three great songs, three canticles, the poem's first general purpose being the glory of God. The Inferno then comprises 34 small songs, cantos, the Purgatorio 33 cantos and the Paradiso 33 cantos, meaning the Divine Comedy comprises 100 cantos, a perfect number. The whole poem, moreover, is stamped formally with the great mystery of the Christian faith, that God is one in three persons, from the macro level, one poem in three parts, to the micro level, the poem's basic unit, is the tetsina, a three-line um, tetsina, one in three. Okay, so now we're moving to, to the beginning of the journey. So, how does this great Christian epic, this great Christian epic to rival the great epics of classical antiquity begin? In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard a thing it is to say what that wood was, so savage and harsh and strong, that the thought of it renews my fear. Nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. Ai, quanto a dir qual era e cosa dura, esta selva selvaggia e aspra e forte, che nel pensier rinova da paura. Where the wrath of Achilles provides the narrative impetus for Homer's Iliad, and Virgil sings, Arma virumque cano, of arms and the man, Aeneas I sing, of Aeneas's exile and subsequent founding of Rome. It is Dante's own sin and ignorance that begin and orient his Christian journey and epic narrative. Why? Because our faith tells us that we are made in the image of God with an intellect, a capacity to know, and a will, a capacity to love. But it also tells us, although it's quite apparent to anyone, I think, with the smallest bit of reflection, that we are born in ignorance. It is a dark wood in which we find ourselves, and in sin, a wood so savage and harsh and strong that the thought of it renews our fear. We neither know the right way, the straight way was lost, nor are we able to escape from sin and ignorance on our own. Dante's first words in the poem are, Miserere di me, have mercy on me. 
We are made in the image of God. We have an intellect and a will. We are knowing and desiring creatures. And we are free to know and desire pretty much as we like. Freedoms, as perhaps the Ukraine crisis teaches us so forcefully, we should never take for granted. Nonetheless, we will be called to account not least by our future selves, and I can say this from bitter experience, for how we use this precious freedom. No one can honestly say, je ne regrette rien, I regret nothing. And we sometimes, in a university context, offering so much and such different areas of knowledge, don't know what to know, or even what is most important to know. And in a marketplace that seeks to draw us to so many delectable things, our desires are confused. Our soul is like a deer, sequel chervus, trapped in a dense thicket, unable to get out. The divine comedy is then the telling of the great journey of desire, from sin and ignorance to holiness and virtue. In an epistle to his patron, Dante wrote that the purpose of his great poem is to lead people in this life from the state of misery, the misery of sin, and to direct them to the beatitude of heaven. Yes, the poem tells us in allegorical and symbolic form Dante's own confessional journey, from sinner to saint. But Dante is also an everyman. His journey is our journey. He writes in the middle of the journey of our life, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, not just the journey of my life. And on this journey, we, like him, are never alone. Like him, we also have the inestimable resources of Catholic theology, philosophy and culture on which to draw. These resources are, in a typological sense, mapped by the two main guides of Dante's journey, Virgil and Beatrice. Dante is, then, the type for the everyman Christian. He is a sinner whose heart or will seeks virtue, the good. He is a student whose own passionate intellect desires knowledge, the truth. And he is a maker, a poet, a creator of beautiful fictions. Virgil is a type for the natural order. He is an instructor in natural virtue. He is a teacher of philosophical truth. And he is a guide in poetry, a master poet, a mio maestro. Beatrice, finally, is a type for the Christian supernatural order. In the practical field of morals, she is grace and the light of glory. In the speculative field of knowledge, she is faith and the light of glory. In the realm of making, she is the very beauty of Christian revelation that draws us to God for you.
It is thus that when Dante, at the height of his worldly success, as one of the six priors of Florence and a celebrated poet, scholar and statesman, recognises and represents himself as nonetheless morally and spiritually lost in a dark wood, in a state of sin and ignorance. And he opens himself up to divine intervention, calling out the first word of the great penitential Psalm 50, Miserere, may have mercy on me. Beatrice, Grace, sends Virgil, natural reason, to show Dante the baseness of human vices in hell, to show him that he is the state of misery of a godless world looked at through a moral and spiritual gaze. Dante's hell, after all, is a world where hope in God is left behind as its inscription informs us. Leave all hope, lasciate ogni speranza voi che entrate. Leave all hope, you who enter here. And Virgil then accompanies Dante up the mountain of purgatory, a vision of the Christian pathway of ever greater friendship with God and neighbour in love through virtue and through combating vice. And finally, Virgil leaves Dante with Beatrice herself to see the extraordinary beauty and holiness of life that such a journey of desire makes possible and is its eternal reward. Free will, reason and love. As Dante follows Virgil, so we are invited then to follow Dante on his imaginative journey of desire. And as we do so, without a map to guide us, surprise builds on surprise. On entering Hell's Gate, we first see a group of souls running behind a standard, stung incessantly by a swarm of hornets and wasps, their faces streaming with blood. These are, in Dorothy Sayers' translation, the scum who never really lived. The souls who, in the great cosmic battle between good and evil in each individual life, sat on the fence. They are the weak-willed, the agnostics, who failed to do evil or good. They failed, that is, to make use of the great gift given to us as human beings, free will, and are thus despised by God and Satan alike. Being stung for eternity by a swarm of hornets and wasps, I find um, quite useful um, as an image to get me out of bed in the morning, um, something, something I struggle with. And coffee is also helpful. <laughs> After that, we pass into the first circle of hell, which surprise, again, is instead rather pleasant. A place not of suffering and pain, but rather a kind of beautiful parkland. And we encounter the great heroes and heroines of classical antiquity, and within a castle encircled by seven walls, a philosophical family with Plato and Socrates in conversation with Aristotle, the master of those that know. Vidi il maestro di color che sana, seder tra filosofica familia. How positively delightful, you might think. Here we see the wonderful fruits of the will put to good use in the flourishing of our natural powers, including preeminently our God-given light of reason, a gift which, albeit limited, distinguishes us as rational from the other animals. And then 
we descend past the ghastly figure of Minos to the first sinners of commission, the lovers tossed eternally in a howling wind from those whose lust had led them even to incest to the refined and graceful Paolo and Francesca who would come to embody in subsequent centuries and in particular in the 19th and 20th centuries the very ideal of romantic love. Free will, reason, love. These are the three key human or anthropological principles which emerge from our encounters with the first three groups of Dante's Hell. Our freedom to choose, our capacity to know, and our capacity to be moved by love. In the very centre of Purgatorio and of the poem as a whole, Dante presents the drama of the moral life as a sometimes delicate balancing of these three great principles. We are all desiring creatures, we are all lovers, and we are also free to choose, and to choose in accordance with knowledge and our reason. Dante describes the human soul as loved into existence by God. Forth of his God's hands, whose brooding tenderness loves her, or ere she comes to be, is brought, laughing and weeping, like a babe that plays, the simple infant soul, that, knowing nothing, but moved by a glad maker, turns with pleasure to this or that, by which her fancy is caught. Esce di mano a lui che la vagheggia prima che sia, a guisa di fanciulla che piangendo e ridendo parcoleggia l'anima semplicetta che sa nulla salvo che mossa da lieto fattore volentier torna ciò che la trastulla. It is, I think, a beautiful account of how, created by God in love and loved by God, we are born set in motion by him as loving and desiring creatures who respond first instinctively to the world around us. Rather than, as Descartes might have us think, starting from our own consciousness, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and then moving on to analyse the world, in reality, in reality, from our birth, it is the world that impresses itself on us, whether it be the colours of our environment impressing our eyes. In a sense, we don't choose what we see. You, you open your eyes and you see the colours. I, I can't choose whether to see you or not. You're all very beautiful people, so I'm delighted that that's what I'm seeing. But I'm not choosing. It's just imprinting on my, uh, on my uh, retina. The sound of my voice ineluctably impressing itself on your ears the warmth of this building impressing itself on our skin. The world also draws and attracts us in different ways. So a baby is drawn instinctively to the milk in his or her mother's breast and then to other things that delight it, food, chocolate, toys. And all this because the baby is made for love and is first unknowingly seeking his or her maker. Equally though, our desires can go astray 
And we need, in Dante's words, a law, a rule, a guide to curb and direct our desires. For Dante, this is where our free will and reason and also our parents and teachers come in. The world draws us with multiple desires, but we have free will, the capacity to assent or not to assent to a given desire. And we have reason, a counsellor power innate, set there to guard the threshold of assent. Um, thus, I may see uh, a fudge donut and knowing it to be intensely pleasurable. They have particularly good fudge donuts in St. Andrews. Um, <laughs> the donut may attract me towards it. Okay, It has a power over me. However, I do not need to assent to this desire, inclining towards it in love, especially if I know my will is informed by the knowledge that after the immediate pleasure and sugar high, I'm liable to collapse for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> we are not, in other words, our desires, which can stray all over the place, particularly during the tumults of adolescence and early adulthood, drawn as these desires are by different external and internal stimuli. Moreover, just because we experience a desire does not make that desire natural for us. Why? Because unlike other animals, we have, in addition to a particular desire, free will, the capacity to assent or not to that desire, and to do so in accordance with our reason, a reason which is progressively informed by knowledge of what is right and wrong. In a beautiful allegory of the famous siren of myth, who leads men in the voyage of this life to moral shipwreck, Dante alludes to all the limited goods that humans are drawn to, the vanity of human fame or human glory, the instability of wealth, the limits of power, the vanity of sensual pleasures. Although Dante's is, in Dorothy Sayers words, a way of affirmation, and he thinks we should delight in the good of this world. Like St. Augustine, Dante also shows us, how the goods of the world can trap us if our loves are not ordered to God. When, on the terrace of envy, Dante is drawn to a soul because of his love for Italy, he is reminded, oh, my dear brother, everyone is a citizen of the one true city, but you meant to say that you lived in Italy as a pilgrim. When Dante sees souls weighed down by the huge boulders of their pride, whether in their artistic and intellectual glory, their wealth and power, their noble ancestry, he exclaims in a direct address to his reader, O oh, proud Christians, weary wretches, who, weak in mental vision, put your faith in backward steps, do you not realise that you are worms, born to form the angelic butterfly that flies to justice without a shield? Why is it? that your spirit floats on high, since you are like defective insects, like worms in whom formation is lacking. O superbi cristiani, miseri lassi, che della vista della mente inferni, fidanza avete nei retrosi passi, non vi accorgete voi che noi siam verni, nati a formare l'angelica farfalla, che volla la giustizia senza schemi. 
di che l'animo vostro in alto galla, poi siete quasi andomate in difetto, siccome sì vermo, in cui formazione falla. In this case, Dante directly calcs St. Augustine himself. Augustine says, Quid sumus nisi vernes et de verminibus Deus Angelos facit? What are we except worms? And from worms God makes angels. This world, in other words, is the chrysalis, a place of growth, of delight, and of patient suffering, but a temporary stage in our destiny as human beings and never its end. Dante's Purgatorio especially seeks to chart the human process of spiritual transformation, a training in the virtues and a battle against the vices, a transformation of human desire. I will sing, he says, of the second realm where the human spirit purges itself and becomes worthy to ascend to heaven. Canterò di quel secondo regno dove l'umano spirito si purga e di salire al ciel diventa regno. Nearly there. Four, passionate intellects in hell and heaven. In my own first years at university, I was naturally drawn to Dante's intellectuals, the passionate intellects in his poem. I had first encountered Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics as an undergraduate, and I developed a real love for classical philosophy, even being adopted by the then lecturer in ancient philosophy in Cambridge, now a professor at Oxford, as an honorary philosopher. It helped, I think, that I played in a trio uh, with him and his future wife. Um, so Dante's celebration of Aristotle, of Plato and Socrates certainly appealed to me. But I was particularly struck by another group of passionate intellectuals, the first group of heretics one encounters on entering into Dante's infernal city of Dis where each heretical sect is allotted its own graveyard. Remarkably, Dante focuses on a sect which isn't even a distinctively Christian heresy at all. The followers of Epicurus, who hold that when the body dies, so too the soul. To Epicurus is attributed that wonderful but morally devastating aphorism. We have no need to fear death, for when we are, death is not. And when death is, we are not. I was struck, that is, that Dante places within his own vision of the Christian afterlife a group of people who deny that there is an afterlife at all. Indeed, the central dialogue in this episode is between Dante and the father and father-in-law of his first friend Guido Cavalcanti, a renowned philosopher, poet and statesman, whom Boccaccio would subsequently describe as simply an atheist. I was drawn to these medieval atheists, and I subsequently wrote my first book on Dante and Epicurus, because they were not like so many contemporary atheists, it seemed to me, epicures in the modern sense. They did not live a life of sensual or even more refined pleasures. Instead, Dante seemed to be referring to a truly honourable and philosophical life which spurns the life of the senses, while equally holding in contempt, as little more than childish fables, the revealed religions of the three Abrahamic faiths. Another passionate intellect who intrigued me was Dante's Ulysses, 
who gives an account of what it is to be a human being, of the dignity of a human being, which has run down the ages. A humanism even inspiring the Jewish scientist Primo Levi amidst the dehumanizing horror and barbarity of Auschwitz with a reason to go on. Consider, Ulysses addresses his followers, consider your origins. You were not made to live like beasts, but to follow virtue and knowledge. Considerate la vostra semenza, fatti non foste a vive come bruti, ma persegui virtute e canoscenza. So this philosophical and human message had a profound impact on me. And I still have on my desk in my office a clay paperweight of Ulysses, which I bought while backpacking in Sicily as a student with my then girlfriend and now wife. So Ulysses, you know. Uh, Dante has such a profound respect for this human searching for truth and goodness, for knowledge and virtue, and for those, whether people of faith or not, who try or seek to lead a truly human and humanizing life. Nonetheless, I couldn't help but see that the pagan philosophers, the Epicureans and Ulysses all do end up, whatever their intellectual or moral qualities, in Dante's hell. Moreover, I was also being introduced by Dante and by my teachers at university to other great Christian writers, and for me the most influential, to St Thomas Aquinas. In the heaven of the sun, the heaven of the lovers of wisdom, Dante gives preeminence indeed to St Thomas Aquinas. Only Dante himself, Virgil and Beatrice are afforded more lines in the Divine Comedy than Aquinas. Characteristically though, Dante St. Thomas introduces himself humbly with the words, I was among the lambs of the holy flock that Dominic leads by a path where one fattens well if one does not wander. And St. Thomas introduces Dante to the first garland of the wise, 12 passionate intellects who followed their desire for truth, including his teacher, St. Albert the Great, Peter Lombard, the author, of the 13th century textbook of theology, the sentences, Boethius, St. Bede, Cedra of Brabant, amongst others. Seeing this constellation of the wise, Dante berates the narrowness of much study down below on earth. O oh, imbecile ambition of mortality, what ill-directed reasoning syllogistical, weight down thy wings to mundane triviality and the sometimes overworldly ambitions and desires that drive it, chasing juridical or aphoristical successes, one bent on business, one on spoliation, another fagging at his carnal pleasure. So I like Dorothy Sayers' translation. Um, it's quite free, but it's, it's quite powerful. Uh, while Dante, at blessed leisure from all these cares, at Beatrice's side, enjoyed heaven's welcome in right glorious measure. These souls that multiply out in further garlands were lovers of God. And appropriately, Dante celebrates in the heaven of wisdom, in particular, the lives of St. Francis and St. Dominic, whose orders would lead to the foundation and establishment of the great universities across Europe, the great institutional settings 
for the communal quest for truth. This was the case, for example, in the origins and early histories of the universities of Cambridge, St Andrews, Pisa and Rome, where I myself had the privilege to study and teach. And Dante would surely have found it appropriate and a highly prudent decision that after 24 years of the Franciscans supporting the chaplaincy and the ministry of the Catholic University of America here, the Dominican brothers took over the role earlier this semester. Um, I think 24 years also seems a good term, the number of the two garlands of Christian intellectuals named by Dante in the heaven of the sun. Dante presents St. Dominic and St. Francis as the true ideal romantic lovers and chivalric knights, the two champions sent to the aid of Christ's bride, the church, by whose deeds and words the straying people were brought to themselves. St. Francis, seraphic in love, St. Dominic, an amorous lover of the Christian faith, the holy athlete, benign towards his own, but harsh towards his enemies. While Dante's journey started in a dark wood, his mind in ignorance, his will in sin, the lives of St. Dominic and of St. Francis are witnesses to the Christian perfections of the human intellect and will. Espoused to the Christian faith, St. Dominic placed a special emphasis on truth, the perfection and goal of the intellect in seeking to grow in knowledge of God, the ultimate truth we seek, and pass this on to others, contemplata ali stradere. Espoused to Christian poverty and freed thereby from material attachments, St. Francis shows the Christian perfection of the will in its love of God, the ultimate good we seek, and service of neighbour, Pax et Bonum. Conclusion. At this intellectual retreat on Aquinas and Dante, it thus seems fitting to arrive in my first talk at the heaven of the Christian intellectuals. All passionate intellects in love with truth and goodness, and to derive from them fruitful models for our own questing and intellectual lives. Many, though, are the flowers of paradise. As the different spheres of Dante's paradise further highlight, there are multiple Christian pathways and vocations, and whatever Christians are called to become and to do, they are all joined in their faith, hope and charity. In the heaven of the fixed sun, indeed, Dante encounters St. Peter, St. James and St. John in turn, as he's examined, in a kind of pastiche of a university exam of the time on the virtues of faith, hope and charity. In my own life, I became particularly attracted to the scent, as it were, of the passionate intellects and ultimately of the wise in the heaven of the sun. And it's been my great privilege and fortune to be able to continue as an all too ignorant and sinful student of the likes of St. Thomas Aquinas and Dante. My hope for you, is that whatever vocation you are called to pursue, you may have good guides for your journeys. And that in light of this intellectual retreat, you may consider making Aquinas and Dante, both passionate intellects, guides for your own. Thank you.
questions and just please repeat the question as you would. <laughs> and I'll be there, there to assist you if you forget. Okay. Mm. Uh, thank you for your talk. This was quite good. Uh, this might be an ill-formed question, but I think one of the most striking features of reading Dante is his insistence upon our culpability. Um, like we are not slaves to temperament, to chance, to environment, to, to age, to youth. And then one thing that's interesting is when you go through, when he's walking through Inferno, all the characters he meets with kind of admit they're wrong, but like in Canto Five, right, it's like this disembodied desire that kind of leads them into sin. And it's this interesting anthropology where, where your desires are something that are not integrated to yourself, but are, are kind of this exterior force that's leading you. Um, and I was wondering if, like, so we have this new anthropology where we can say that our intellect and our will can be made one with hell and faith. Um, how do you think this differs from kind of the modern view of humans, like maybe in just like this kind of post-Freudian sense where our desires are, are something that we can't really control, um, that we're just kind of slave to like your Enneagram type or, or whatever you are in the Myers-Briggs sense. Um, because it's just this sly insinuation that we are determined by all these different forces. And even like in the discussion in the Purgatorio, it's like, look, we know that the planets might have an influence on us, but you are not bound by that decision. Like you, you are a free culpable being. Um, but there, there seems to be some distinction between what Dante's telling us about our responsibility and what the modern view of a human is. Sorry, I hope that was coherent. No, I'm just thinking how to summarize that, that question. <laughs> but I think it's a very good one. So I think the question is, um, Dante um, seems to insist on culpability. And yet in outlining his, these three principles of being moved by love, of our reason and free will, um, uh, to what extent um, are the sinners in hell culpable to what extent are they are their sins moved by actions beyond their control and then there's also a question of um how does dante's anthropology or account of these three principles relate to the contemporary arena where uh, many one many one would say you know we're not responsible for actions we ju you know we just we just have this kind of genetic makeup or this kind of myers-briggs or enneagram type and, and we just act in accordance with that that's my summary. I hope that's 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 um, somewhere there. So it's an excellent question, and, and and I thought your reflection was very good. And I'm not sure I can do all that much better than it than it. But but this question really comes up most forcefully in uh, Canto Five, um, uh, and in the wonderful encounter with uh, Francesca and Paolo, because Francesca has this wonderful speech where she basically says, everything that I did was due to love. And love says, l'amor che nulla marto amar perdona. L'amor move noi ad una, l'amor ci, I can't remember, but it basically it's love that moves me. It's love that moves, love moved us to this dead. It wasn't me, it wasn't me, basically. I'm just a victim of this powerful force of love. And even in Dante's day, there was, this dispute, you know, that um, the, the the kind of the great, the noble soul is one who's moved by love. Dante's very keen on that, moved by by love. And if you think about the structure of hell, um, what's uh, the depth of Dante's hell? It's not the fires of hell, it's ice. Why? Because these people are cut off from love. These people have betrayed love. 
They've portrayed natural love through four, but they've also portrayed the deepest bonds of love, the love that we should have for our parents, the love that we should have for our benefactors, because you have treachery. So Dante's all about love. But then how does he respond to Francesca's objection? Well, I just did what you said. I was moved by love, and my love led me to, in her case, adultery with um, Paolo. And then they were both killed by Paolo's brother, and then they end up in hell. Um, how does that relate to the contemporary? Well, as I said, in the 19th century, Francesca and Paolo were effectively extracted from hell and held up as an ideal of romantic love. There are about 10 Italian operas on Paolo and Francesca. Rachmaninoff wrote an opera as well. If you know Kiss in the Kiss, that famous sculpture, it was originally entitled Francesca and Paolo. We should all be like Francesca and Paolo. And in fact, in a lot of kind of comedy movies, you've got to follow love, okay? Whatever the, whatever the consequences. So, so that's one response to that. Um, but the way I explain it, because you referred also to the astronomical um, influence of the planets where this discourse comes up um, again, in the, uh, is, is, is in this way. Uh, in um, Dante's time, um, and, and this comes up in C.S. Lewis' discarded image as well, um, they believe that the, just as you know, the moon has a material effect on the earth, Right, it causes the tides. So the other seven planetary spheres had material effects, not just on the geology of the Earth, but also on our emotions and, and feelings. Right? Um, and so they, if you're born under this star or the planets are moving in a certain direction, it will have an effect on your disposition. You might be more disposed to uh, courage or more disposed to um, certain kinds of desire. I would say there is an exact parallel between that and, say, what we would just call by DNA. So a lot of people are saying that you, you just you have a certain DNA and that determines how you will act. Now, Dante will give a huge amount of um, will acknowledge that our DNA, if you like, uh, the matter we are given, the movements of the stars in his position. But we were just in the DNA, DNA has a massive effect right, in disposing us to certain actions or certain other actions. Um, you know, I would say I'm naturally melancholic and, and, and um, you know, not a particularly enjoyable person to be around. I wish I was more sanguine, you know, and, and sort of, you know, those lovely people, sort of red faces and, you know, drink wine and, you know, do all sorts of terrible things. But then they say, oh, look, I'm so sorry. And they weep and then they're forgiven. You know, I love those kind of people. Well, they're really nice people to have around. I would say, you know, the, the DNA I was given was more the kind of melancholic scholar, you know, type, which is, which is really not very nice. I'm not a great person. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, so it's, it's true that we, we're given DNA. We, we, we have this sound. But what Dante insists is, nonetheless, we have an intellect and will. Right? And that is immaterial. And that's the point. That itself is not moved by all those external forces. So again, in relation to the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or um, talks about determinism, yeah, I would affirm a lot of that. I say they're probably quite helpful ways of uh, thinking about your personality and thinking about... Um, you know, how it just is the case that, as my grandfather said, we differ, thank God, right? that, that human beings are not all the same. They, they, they have lots of different uh, tendencies, some more than others, but they're not determining um, tendencies. And that's why Dante emphasizes the fact that we have intellect and will. And I think that's exactly the same today, um, that, that we have that. Um, we're, we're not determined 
by these either external forces that, that come onto us or by our DNA makeup. At the same time, we recognise that external factors and our internal makeup is tremendously important. Yes. Uh, could you paint, uh, paint a more elaborate picture of what you mean by passionate intellect? So I get the sense that you don't mean um, passion-led intellect. Uh, so, and I guess maybe what, what if you can point to a passionate intellect, what would be an impassioned So the question is, can you elaborate a little bit further on what you mean by a passionate intellect and what would a passionless intellect look like? Um, so, I mean, what I mean by a passionate intellect, um, as I said, it's a term used to describe Dorothy Sayers and her own encounter with Dante. And I, I would say I'm not using it in a technical sense, um, but I'm trying to think about um, that our intellects are passionate insofar as they're set in motion. They have an object. They desire something. Our intellects are made for truth. Um, and, uh, and so they should be aflame with that desire for truth. And as they come to know truth, um, that itself uh, makes them more aflame to know more truth. I mean, Father Jonah talked about this, you know, talked about it in the friendship of God, that, you know, Aquinas and Dante, both put in terms of Vatican vision, that, that primary is the internet, that we, we, we know God, and in knowing God, we love God. The more we know God, the more we love God, which makes us know God more, which makes us love God more. So it's dynamic, the internet. Um, and the reason I emphasize that today is because when I look at my colleagues, not sorry, not my colleagues now, I shouldn't say that. Let me go back 20 years ago. When I, when I sort of look back to myself as a university student, as many of you now, um, sometimes I looked at my professors and they didn't look like they were in love with truth. Um, they didn't look like they were aflame with truth. They, they, their intellects didn't look like they were, they were getting what they wanted, right? That, that, there was the, that, that, that they were being fulfilled. And, and similarly, I felt, you know, some of the contemporary academic, you get lots of sort of facts about different things, about history and different things. But there wasn't this dynamic sense of actually being in love with the truth. And, and that's what I mean by the passion intellect. And I think also, I mean, that's how Dante describes, as I say, um, St. Dominic. He says he's an amorous lover of the Christian faith, the holy athlete. Um, and of course, in those days, you'd allegorize that. So you have an espousal between St. Dominic and Lady Faith. So it's a really erotic and the language of the Song of Songs is throughout. It's very much an erotic um, desire that, 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 that St. Dominic is, is truly in love with Lady, Pop, a lady Faith. Um, and it draws out all, all that affective dimension. I think that's incredibly important um, because if you don't have that, um, that relationship of love, um, you, you, you're, you, you can be a bit deadened in a sense. It's sort of like a dead faith. Thomas would say, rather than a, a live faith. A live faith is where the will is also activated. Yeah. Uh, lots of questions. Okay, yes, in the third row first. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, okay, so in uh, Dante, or in the Paradiso, there's this scene where you have the, a bunch of things, and forgive me, it's been a year since I actually read it, but there's um, 
there's a couple saints who are there who in life were, were well known for vehemently disagreeing with each other and yet in heaven they're there's this they've thrown that all away and they're just we're in unity with god we're worshiping god unified together how would you um with that that it's a very hopeful message or a very hopeful idea from dante how would we apply that to the modern situation of the church being divided into protestants and catholics and orthodox and all that and if this if this uh follow-up if this hope is to be realized or seen by everyone in general how should we respond to that in everyday life like should we just throw away these petty squabbles and actually the petty squabbles and actually try to get together in loving discourse okay so the question is um in paradiso you find saints who in life were loggerheads and then they're in heaven they're, they're kind of happily dancing together and singing hymns um and how might we learn from that in also the contemporary arena um and uh, also an interdenominational context um i think that's a lovely question i mean i don't think you even need to go into an interdenominational context particularly in the states to think about uh, <laughs> um you know, for example catholics being a, a loggerheads on on major issues um I mean, I, I read a couple of years back and I, I found it really, really helpful. Um, uh, oh, one of our great English saints, um, John Henry Newman, has this lovely um, history of the early English saints. And it, this is about, who was it? But I mean, exactly this. You know, you have these two people who are now saints. I can't even remember who they were. But in life, they were completely opposed to each other. You know, and they thought was right. They others were, it was to do with, you know, should we have the Roman Latin or should we have more of that Celtic church? And they're completely at loggerheads. And yet they're both recognised by the church as saints. So I think that is quite encouraging, um, personally, I think. Um, that, you know, we're all individuals. We're all following, you know, what, what, what we believe to be God's will. And it could be God's will that um, we're in conflict in certain ways uh, with each other uh, uh, on earth. Well, that's, that's how I understand it. Um, I think that you may be referring to um, uh, a very famous uh, example uh, in precisely the heaven of the sun, the heaven of the Christian wisdom, um, uh, which is the presence of Cedra Brabant in, in the heaven of the... Is that, was it maybe that? Was that I think, I think who, who was it? Who, who was a historical opponent of Aquinas on certain uh, philosophical issues. Now, that is a massive and contentious issue, which I'm going to touch on a little bit this afternoon, um, because um, uh, um, one interpretation, well, Van Steenbergen, who is an uh, important 20th century thinker, um, discovered a treatise by uh, Cedra Rabant in the Vatican, which is commentary on the De Anima, which suggested that Cedra had actually changed his mind, having read Aquinas on a philosophical point, to come into harmony with Aquinas. So one, one way of reading that is Dante is actually representing the fact he, Cedra's there because he's a very good philosopher, but he's also had the humility to recognise where he's wrong and, get, get, um, uh, uh, and come together. Um, but most people would interpret it in the way that you say, that actually they've been at loggerheads and somehow Dante's celebrating um, this diversity. Um, I mean, I would say that Dante is not a relativist, so he does not believe that there, are, there is one truth. So either 
this is right or it's wrong. But nonetheless, he recognised that in our pursuit of the truth, we can get things wrong. And there's another beautiful episode in terms of just the order of the nine angels, where, um, who is it? Um, St. Gregory or one of the saints laughs at his mistake in getting the thrones and the seraphims uh, the wrong way up. You know, so there's there's a kind of delight in getting it, it wrong, recognising it wrong, that's fine, because we recognise what we recognise. We uh, live in sin and ignorance, and so we're in our intellectual enterprise. We're doing our best to get to the truth, but we may get it wrong. And and even St Thomas Aquinas was very clear about that. You know, I think towards the end of his life, he says, gives my writings, if any of them are against what the churches believe, let them be put aside. And he didn't think, right, because I've written it, it's necessarily true. He recognises that... Uh, we are all fallible, and, and so uh, we require the whole church to um, uh, uh, to correct individual mistakes. Um, and and similarly, when you look at heresy in the sphere of heresy, the heretic is someone who perseveres in their own individual opinion against the authority of the wisdom of the church. Whereas for for, for even you think about the ways that St Thomas Aquinas. Present, well, Dante presents St Thomas Aquinas, you know, I was a sheep in the flock of St Dominic. And so he sees his pursuit of truth within a flock. He's a sheep. And I think that's just a very important way of thinking. And I, I would say that's the emphasis in the Paradiso, the, the sense of uh, this, this communal body um, where individuals contribute with their talents, but always the whole is greater than the parts. Yes. Uh, yeah, so... Dante seems to very heavily focus on the wise and the philosophers, and he seems to very much have a, an affinity for them. And yet he has this theme where the philosophers or the intellectuals like still might be lacking in holiness or true relationship with God. Like for example, like you mentioned, the followers of Epicurus and Ulysses, or the great philosophers in Limbo, or even in Heaven, he places uh, the theologians and the wise on a sphere that's lower to the martyrs and the contemplatives and so on and so forth. So what do you think is Dante's statement on the intellect and philosophy in terms of man attaining holiness and relationship with God? So the question is, um, Dante seems to place a lot of emphasis on um, the intellects, and I've talked obviously today about the passionate intellects, and yet um, you get great philosophers who are damned or in hell uh, in Limbo or the Epicureans, and similarly even the greatest, if we might think of the Christian um, uh, intellectuals like Aquinas, are only in the heaven of the sun uh, in paradise. I think there's a beautiful commentary by Benvenuto Remola uh, when he talks about the uh, transition from the heaven of sun, which is the heaven of Christian wisdom, to the next heaven, which is the heaven of Mars, which is the heaven of the Christian martyrs. And he says that while the Christian intellects wrote with their pens, the martyrs wrote with their blood. So I think there is there um, you know, an acknowledgement that the greatest witness to the faith is martyrdom uh you know those who are willing to um give up their very lives for the faith and, and in a sense write the faith through their blood so i think there is something there 
at the same time, I don't think that um, we should take too literally the hierarchy of the seven spheres. Um, all the blessed reside in the Empyrean, and Dante makes that absolutely clear, beyond space and time. The seven spheres are only, the, the, the soul, the, 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 the saints only appear to Dante through these spheres to help him understand. That's the only reason. So it, the whole vision of paradise is not what paradise is. It is a way of communicating to Dante the different um, talents and diversity of talents and, and things of, of heaven. So we shouldn't take it too literally. And um, I think, um, as Father Albert was saying, you know, what one of the things is, you know, it's natural to associate the sun with wisdom. Right? What does the sun do? It illuminates, it lights us up. And the intellect should, the, the truth lights up our intellect. What does the sun do? It warms us. Well, the truth warms our heart. It uh, loves the heart. So um, now, would you rather be associated with the sun or with the Mars? Personally, I think the sun's kind of a bit more important than Mars, right? In the cosmological hierarchy, Mars comes higher, but come on, I mean, the sun. What's most associated with Christ? The sun. Now, every church in this period is orientated towards the east. Why? Because the great image for God and for Christ is the sun. And, you know, I mean, you know how it all works. You know, Christ rises, the sun rises in, 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 in the east. So, so I don't think, so I think what I'm trying to say is you, you, you could see in one sense the heaven of the sun being the crowning glory. Um, the other thing, again, as St. Albert mentioned, is that um, it's associated with the virtue of prudence, the kind of virtue of prudence. And uh, Aquinas was known as Ille Prudentissimus Frater Aquinas. Yeah, he was the most prudent and he has the most extraordinary treatise on prudence. Um, and that, in a sense, is the, uh, uh, the queen of the moral virtues, um, not least as it uh, helps us discern what we should be doing in every day and every moment of the day. Um, and there's a lovely little book edited by Father Jonah, by Father uh, Gregory Pine on prudence. It's a really short book, but I really uh, recommend it. It came out this year. There you go. I'll put in your view of Pine. Yeah. <laughs> now you can take one more question. Okay, okay. Uh, one more question. Uh, uh, I think you were waiting before. Were you waiting before or have you just come up with a question? I was waiting before. Okay, yeah, no, no. Go ahead, Justin. Um, so the I, I also um, wrote a paper about the canto where Virgil and Dante uh, encounter Ulysses. And um, I, I thought your comments were, were very compelling. I was hoping that you could maybe give a little bit more. I, I, thinking specifically along the lines of the notes that Dorothy Sayers gives, which is another benefit of her translation. But um, she, she really draws out this idea of Virgil summoning um, Ulysses and, and compelling him to tell the truth to Dante about his own sort of journey and everything because there's this, he, Ulysses is the great trickster, right? So there's this idea that he's not going to actually be truthful in his expression of Dante. Um, at the same time, you have this imagery of Virgil as a great poet um, summoning Ulysses before them in a way that poets do. So, so, so it's to write an epic like um, 
the Odysseus, uh, uh, the Odyssey, or the Iliad, like Homer does, in a, in a way, a poet is summoning up the characters, summoning up the story in an important way. So I'm just curious if um, you could maybe expound a little bit more on how that relates to this idea of passionate intellect and where Ulysses goes wrong. Um, okay, so the question is about Dante's portrayal of uh, Ulysses and also the role of Virgil uh in relation to dorothy says his commentary on that passage um but also just to expound a little bit more on that um first of all i mean you're right there's a lot of um scholarly disagreement in a sense to, to, of the extent to which um ulysses is, is presented by dante in a positive light or whether we should take his his uh speech as i have done um as a a kind of human humanism as a as a kind of positive humanism or to what extent he's kind of um misleading his followers and leading them to shipwreck because of course it does uh his his ship that he takes them on fails and um uh i mean for now i think uh maybe more helpful i can talk to you more about the episode um afterwards um but maybe uh to make the point that yes um dante has a huge admiration for the achievements, the great achievements of classical culture, um, whether that is the um, uh, Homer, who he sees as a sort of great poet, or Virgil as the great Latin poet. Um, and one way of reading, uh, in particular, the Inferno is as a dialogue between Christianity and uh, pagan culture as a dialogue um, and it's a very beautiful way of thinking it also because in in setting up that dialogue it's also a, a dialogue between grace and nature between revelation and reason between uh, what we can come to know and uh, with our natural powers and and what comes with christianity what can fulfill so in a sense dante's particularly the inferno but the poem as a whole sets up that dialogue um, and, and I would just say in my own experience as well, that was something which I found very interesting. And I think it's particularly important for the day, for today, because although here we are in quite a, um, you know, very religious context, we're in a Dominican house to study, in a pontifical faculty, um, of course, we go out into a world which is um, predominantly secular. So we are ourselves always having to um, be aware of that dialogue with secular culture. And I think for me, again, Dante alongside Aquinas is, very helpful today because both of them um, in different ways were deeply engaged with uh, the non-Christian, with the non-believer, whether with Aquinas or the Summa Constantilis and his um, dialogues with non-Christians, non whether it be Jews or Muslims or indeed uh, the kind of Gentile philosopher, um, or whether it be Dante and his engagement as uh, a deeply uh, deep believer with uh, pagan culture and reason. Thank you, Professor Corbett. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith. 
and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.